0: Thanks everybody for joining me today. I'm Morag Kersel and I am Associate Professor in the Anthropology Department at DePaul University and I'm also the Director of the Museum Studies Minor and I'm affiliated with the Center for Cultural Heritage Art Law and Museums here at DePaul. I want to thank Professor Chris Woods and the OI for the opportunity to share some of my ongoing research into the politics of displaying objects. I've tried to acknowledge all of the images I use in this presentation and hopefully there are no copyright violations. Any of the ethnographic interviews conducted are with the protocol review from various ethical review boards from the universities where I was associated. I'm a field archeologist and I'm affiliated with the OIs Galilee Prehistory Project. I've worked in the Eastern Mediterranean, mostly in Jordan, Israel, and Palestine for some 30 plus years on various projects related to the Neolithic, the Chalcolithic, and the Early Bronze Age of the region. I'm also interested in questions related to how cultural heritage law and policy work to protect objects and landscapes. While I might not love the Michael Lindley Chin Crystal, I really enjoy visiting the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. As a small town girl from Southern Ontario, I firmly believe there's no way I'd be here today if it wasn't for the yearly school trips we took to the big city of Toronto, and more specifically to the ROM. Through the galleries of the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans, all things ancient, I became obsessed. Early museum visits combined with my archaeology background has resulted in a focus, I would say almost an obsession with museum display. It's rare that I visit museums without a critical eye, and I pity those who accompany me on my visits except with Professor Elizabeth Marlowe, in whom I have found an exhibit critique soulmate. The following stories I share are the result of my ongoing research into the hidden histories and the truth-telling and consequences of individual and institutional acquisitions of curatorial decision-making, visitor interaction, and the post-colonial museum moment. Through a few case studies from museums like the Royal Ontario Museum, the Israel Museum, and the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., we're going to look at the hidden histories of museum display. My use of the term Holy Land is a deliberate reflection of the geopolitical alighting of the regional states, which I believe results in an annexing of artifacts and an avoidance of issues related to territorial ownership. Rarely, if at all, do you see terms like Israel, Jordan, or Palestine used in museum exhibits. Instead, you often get sanitized euphemisms like the land of Israel, the West Bank, the Levant, the Holy Land. These are the preferred museum labels when the museum presents an apolitical stance and reinforces the universal concept of all for antiquities and antiquities for all. The material manifestation of the region speak to and belong to everyone. Never before have we seen such a calling for the 21st century museum, a place where consultation, collaboration, and shared authority are the norm, where there's an open acknowledgement of the legacies of colonialism and imperialism, and where transparency and an honest presentation of the facts are of paramount importance. In examining museums and things from the Holy Land, it has become increasingly clear that while museums might aspire to embody the ideal consultative place, there are many instances where it appears that there's no shared authority. There may even be a complete disregard for transparency, and if consultation has taken place, it is with particular groups, deliberately leaving out some voices, points of views, and sometimes there's even misrepresentation of fact. There are hidden elements in public display. Today, under the 1978 Antiquities Law of Israel, there is a state-sanctioned licensed trade in artifacts where low-end and high-end individual and institutional consumers alike seek a concrete connection to the past, can purchase an archaeological object. In Israel, there are some 50-plus licensed dealers, and most have been in the business for generations. Dealers assert that their identity within the social spheres in Israel and Palestine are enmeshed with the trade, and at the same time, they believe they're providing a valuable service by meeting consumer demand. Today or tomorrow, any one of us could buy an antiquity from a licensed dealer, we could receive an export license, and legally take home our piece of the Holy Land. In the 1990s, or in the 1970s as we will see, attachment to a limestone burial box by a variety of people resulted in an embarrassment for an antiquities department, a lengthy court case, a museum under fire, and a discipline divided over the authenticity of an ancient inscription. In 2002, the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto displayed a limestone burial box from the first century CE bearing the Aramaic inscription, Yaakov, son of Joseph, brother of Yeshua. It was time to coincide with the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature, the American Academy of Religion, and the American Schools of Oriental Research. And in that moment, the ROM capitalized on the perfect storm of a one-of-a-kind thing with the gathering of the best and brightest epigraphers, New Testament scholars, and biblical archeologists. Facts around the ossuary were vague conflicting, and ever-changing, causing critics to ask how an artifact with no known archaeological context or owner history was presented to the AAR, SBL, and ASOR by persons with no scholarly credentials or academic affiliations. By appearing in an acknowledged cultural institution, the ossuary was given the imprimatur it needed. At a 2002 October press conference, co-hosted by the Discovery Channel and the Biblical Archaeological Society, Herschel Shanks, who was then editor of Biblical Archaeological Review and president of the BAS, made an historic announcement of this first century ossuary, containing the inscription, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Shanks stated that the private owner, purchased the ossuary in the early 1990s from an antiquities dealer in Jerusalem's Old City for between $200 and $700. During the press conference, Shanks announced that the box would be on exhibit at the ROM in a November, just in time for the academic meetings of ASOR, SBL, and AAR. So first century ossuary burials are commonly found in rock-cut chamber tombs in the vicinity of Jerusalem, and hundreds have been excavated. It's a secondary burial practice where bones and skulls are removed from burial caves like these and placed in ossuaries. There's little doubt among scholars that the ossuary, or the bone box, is authentic. Initial attention to the spectacular find focused on the fact that it might constitute the only tangible proof of biblical narratives, archaeological and textual evidence for Jesus. Most of the world was soon caught up in the James brother of Jesus frenzy. Discussions surrounding provenance, and by provenance, I mean archaeological find spot, were rare, even though there were conflicting stories about the ossuary's object biography and how it came to be in the possession of an individual and why it had only recently surfaced lots of hidden histories. In the weeks following the initial press conference, the mysterious owner of the box came forward, Oded Galan, a longtime collector-dealer with one of the largest collections of Near Eastern artifacts in the world, and he clarified that he had actually purchased the piece in the 1970, predating the National Israeli Ownership Law of 1978. This law, which as I mentioned previously, allows for the legal sale of antiquities from pre-1978 collections and also from museum deaccessioning and heirloom collections. But anything found after the 1978 date belongs to the state of Israel. No newly discovered material should be available for sale. But that's a story for another day. Under the 1978 law, artifacts of national importance can be claimed for the state regardless of their ownership and regardless of when they were discovered. I would say that an artifact bearing the first archaeological evidence for the existence of Jesus might qualify as of national importance. So leading scientists like Professor Yuval Gorin, who we'll meet later in this uh, story, were called in to authenticate the so-called James ossuary. Microscopic and chemical analysis determined that it was made of stone of a type commonly found in the Jerusalem area, and that it had patina, or the surface film, like that of caves and consistent with the time period. Despite ongoing debate surrounding the inscription, there's little doubt that the box is from the first century CE, and it's authentic. But because we don't know if the James ossuary was found in a cave, in Jerusalem, with bones, or with associated architecture, or burial goods, doubts will always persist. Is it real? Is it fake? Was it made by aliens? Response from various academics prompted questions like, if the James ossuary was indeed a valuable archeological artifact, why was its initial evaluation restricted to such a small circle of academics? Why was there no serious academic discussion before it was put on display in a prestigious museum and featured in a national TV documentary and a mass market book? The IAA, embarrassed by the situation, asked for the item to be returned to Israel. The actual journey from Israel to the Rom was anything but smooth. Oded Golan, who was the legal owner of the box, requested an export license from the Israel Antiquities Authority, which would allow the item to leave Israel and travel to Toronto. After the public press release and the ensuing academic melee, the Israel Antiquities Authority claimed to have no idea that there was any inscription on the artifact. The export license request only mentioned the 1st century bone box, nothing about an inscription or Jesus. The export license was issued and the artifact was packed in a cardboard box with very little bubble wrap and FedEx to Canada. To the dismay of conservators at the ROM, the box arrived in late October with a crack that ran through part of the inscription. All very convenient. During the academic conference and limited run of the ROM exhibit, thousands, some 95,000 people, visited and the ROM made in excess of $270,000. Of course, the more people who saw the box, the more skeptics and discussion. Many thought that the discovery was too good to be true. Perhaps led astray by ties to the profit margin and the possibility of this material verification of the existence of Jesus, and enough reputable scholars weighing in on the side of authenticity, the ROM ignored all the skeptics and issued a press release that stood behind the authenticity of the box and the inscription. We might well ask if the attachment of the museum was to the financial rather than to the veracity of the thing on display. At a time when the ROM's direct government support was being reduced, the ossuary was a godsend for making good the economic shortfall by increasing visitor-related revenues. Archival documents indicate that the ROM did want to assess the ossuary properly before agreeing to an exhibit. But Mr. Shanks threatened to offer the ossuary to the Metropolitan Museum or the Smithsonian in Washington. This threat placed the pressure on the ROM to act quickly or to lose the financial boost of exhibiting the find of the century, which coincided with the AAR, SBL, and ASOR meetings in Toronto. The burden to capitalize on the economic potential of the ossuary may have encouraged museum staff to be less critical of the issue of authenticity. For the ROM, competing aspects of their mission allowed or forced them to choose between the ethical and the profitable course of action. It chose the latter, but in doing so it set in motion a sequence of events that ultimately brought its reputation into question. By the time an artifact is presented in an exhibit, the public expects that the appropriate experts have performed all the necessary checks. There's an assumption that things on display are both genuine and important. In many ways, a museum acts as a gatekeeper, occupying a position which allows it to decide what artifacts should be accepted as culturally important enough to be placed on display. As museum professionals are keen to emphasize, museums enjoy the public trust. In the attempt to capitalize on the academic meeting, and what might be the find of the century, and their duty as a public institution, as a molder of public thought, and a fiduciary institution, The ROM's mixing of rules was confusing, sometimes contradictory, and ultimately perhaps damaging to the museum's mandate of public service. In displaying the undocumented James ossuary, the ROM took on several conflicting roles. It became a presenter of a potentially sacred relic, but one with no assured archeological find spot and a potential fake. And for a full recounting of this story, I would refer you to an article that Neil Brody and I wrote on esteem for biblical artifacts uh, published in 2012. The ROM's willingness under these circumstances to allow attachment, intellectual or economic, to a thing, and to ignore the issues of documentation ensure that demand for ungrounded, using a term of Elizabeth Marlowe, artifacts persists. A thing on display at the ROM that was purchased in the antiquities market. So it must be okay to buy Holy Land artifacts in that market. This attachment also ensures that sometimes, probably more often than we know, fake things are placed on display. Absolutely. After a lengthy forgery case, the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that the ossuary is real, but the inscription and the patina may be fake. A very inauspicious predicament for a museum knowingly or unknowingly displaying fakes and undocumented artifacts. But one which may have resulted in a more cautious and conscientious ROM. In an interview on the 10-year anniversary of the display, Dan Rahimi, who was then-ROM Vice President, declared that if they had a chance for a due over the rom would not have displayed the ossuary between march and september of 2014 the israel museum displayed what curator debbie Hirschman described as quote a small rare group of 9000 year old masks the oldest masks known to date end quote Face-to-face, the oldest masks in the world was the culmination of nearly a decade of research by Israel Museum curators and other archaeologists and scientists. The exhibition marked the first time that a group of masks from the Neolithic, and that's from about 7600 to 6000 BCE, was displayed together, and the first time that the majority of them were publicly accessible. The following reflects on the object-based research into the hidden histories of these Neolithic masks and the consequences intended or unintended of our esteem and attachment for these ancient artifacts. Opening to much fanfare and press coverage, the Israel Museum brought together these 12 Levantine Neolithic masks in this groundbreaking exhibit, launched to coincide with the Jewish holiday of Purim. During this festival, it's customary to consume alcoholic beverages to celebrate in public and to wear costumes and to wear masks. At the exhibit opening, visitors were encouraged to stand behind the plexiglass display cases and have their pictures taken, emulating how the curators thought the masks might have been used in antiquity. At the opening, visitors were given masks to wear, and selfies with the masks were all the rage. The Israel Museum's Facebook page asked the salient question, when was the last time you took a selfie with a 9,000-year-old mask? In her introduction to the exhibit catalog, Hirschman suggests, quote, the exhibit offers a unique opportunity to get to know these magical and powerful and artistic stone faces, to uncover their stories and to reveal their secrets, end quote. While James Snyder, who was then director of the Israel Museum paid homage to the collectors, quote, that we have been able to assemble so many masks in a single place for the first intensive comparative research and then for display is a tribute to the collectors that were so cooperative in making these treasures available to us, end quote. 10 of the masks have no known associated archeological information, all on loan from a private collection all purchased from the Antiquities Market. All twelve masks are displayed together, with nothing distinguishing the archaeological from the market masks. The exhibit was divided into three main parts, a circle of 10 masks, each in plexiglass, offering the opportunity for visitors to see the masks in the round. And along the right side of the room, in a cordoned off masked area, a video of a 9,000 years of the evolution of masks played in an endless loop. Along the walls surrounding the masks were cases and panels of modern ethnographic parallels, 3D models, and the results of 10 years of scientific analyses. The combination of the exhibit lighting and the plexiglass cases created an inspired effect on the blank space on the floor in the center of the ring, which I'm showing you here, and also on the ceiling. I have visited a lot of museum exhibits in my life, and I have to say that this was one of the more visually arresting ones I have ever seen. Two of the masks on display, do have known archaeological find spots and are part of the permanent collection of the Israel Museum. The mask from the collection of the Israel Museum was originally purchased by Notorious Antiquities collector Moshe Dayan in 1970, who at the time was Israel's Minister of Defense. After Dayan's death in 1981, Wilma and Lawrence Tisch acquired the mask and donated it to the Israel Museum, where it's displayed in the permanent prehistoric galleries and where it's known as the Dayan mask. The Diane mask was unearthed by a Palestinian farmer plowing a field north of the West Bank village of El Hadeb near Hebron. It's notable in this map from the UK Daily Mail, and I will acknowledge that they're not always, or never, the most reliable news source. It's notable that the West Bank is actually labeled as Israel, so I've helped them out here, and I added the West Bank and changed a couple of their labels. Labeling it as Israel changes the geographical biography of this mask, which may come from within the borders of Palestine rather than from Israel. In his 1978 autobiography, Diane writes, I was fortunate to acquire this ritual article from this region. It is a human face, one that strikes terror in its beholder. Later salvage excavations carried out by Palestinian archaeologist Jabril Shrew identified a site of some 2.5 acres in size, dated to the pre-pottery Neolithic B some 9,000 years ago. The Diane mask is made of finely crystalline limestone covered by a gray patina. The patina is composed of calcareous deposits that form over time on the surface of objects buried in soil. It's these microscopic components that might reveal whether the object is ancient and perhaps shedding light on its geographic origins, the region from which it originated or where it was buried. But, as recent scientific studies and court cases have proved, patina is not necessarily definitive proof of ancientness. And recall that the James ossuary was determined, the ossuary was determined to be authentic, but both the patina and the inscription are most likely forgeries. The second mask in the permanent collection of the Israel Museum was discovered in the spring of 1983 by archaeologists Ofer Bar-Yosef and David Alone, who were excavating a cramped, dark, debris-filled cave overlooking the Dead Sea. The team included young students Debbie Hirschman, who is the curator of the exhibit, the face-to-face mask exhibit, and Yuval Gorin, the archaeologist who conducted the scientific analysis of the masks and also the James ossuary. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 1940s in a similar cave resulted in this area as a target of looters. The restorable fragments pictured here were recovered by the excavation team outside of the cave entrance in a back dirt pile, which was probably the result of a earlier looting episode. Roughly life size, the Nahal Himar mask is made of dolomitic limestone and to date is one of the largest Neolithic stone masks found thus far, and the only example found from a known archaeological site. The mask has evidence of paint and holes for attaching hair. Far away from any known Neolithic settlement, the excavators surmised that the cave might have been a repository for ritual things, where ceremonial activities were carried out rather than for habitation. Modern ethnographic analogies of masks used for such purposes were deployed in the exhibit to bolster these claims. The typology of the associated lithic spines in conjunction with radiocarbon dates placed this mask also in the pre-pottery Neolithic B from about 9,000 years ago. The remaining 10 masks included in the exhibit are all from the private collection of Michael and Judy Steinhardt, who might be more familiar as the owners of the $1.2 million gold fiale that was returned to Italy in 2000. There are no recorded archaeological find spots for any of the masks in the Steinhardt collection, and the exhibit catalog and labels state simply, unknown sites. Steinhardt's name may also be familiar to some of you as he's often the news for both his business acumen and more lately his suspect collection of antiquities. On February 2nd, 2018, five sculptures were unveiled at a repatriation ceremony in Beirut. Three of the items were from the collection of Michael Steinhardt. He had loaned them to the Met in New York for an exhibit where a Met curator used the Art Loss Register, which is an online database of stolen artifacts, to identify them. They had been stolen during the Lebanese Civil War and had been missing for decades. But I digress. An essay in the exhibit catalog speculates that at least three of the masks may have been discovered by a member of the Bedouin Tamari tribe of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery fame. But there is no archeological or archival evidence to support this claim. This curatorial conjecture ties the Steinharts to an important historic moment in the region. The essay, in the museum catalog places the masks and the Dead Sea Scrolls in the same archaeological fine spot vicinity, which adds to the folklore and aura surrounding the exhibit and the masks. According to the catalog and accompanying media hype surrounding the exhibit, the Steinharts agreed to loan their masks to the museum for purposes of stylistic analyses of the similarities between their masks and those in the collection of the Israel Museum. Stylistically, the masks share striking features. Large eye holes, gaping mouths, which create the expression of a human skull. Perforations on the periphery may have been used for wearing them or for attaching hair, which would have given the masks a more human appearance, or for suspending masks from pillars or other constructed forms. Because ten come from the antiquities market, we have no concrete evidence that they're from the same time period, the same area, or even the same site. And yet 10 years of scientific analysis by Yuval Goren who is an expert in comparative microarchaeology at Ben-Gurion University and one of the excavators with Ofer Bar Yosef of the Nahal Himar mask presents some interesting results. The masks in the Israel Museum collection, the Nahal Himar and the Diane mask, are authentic, which is not at all surprising as one was recovered from a looter's back dirt pile outside of an excavated cave and the other, although purchased by Diane, had a confirmed archaeological find spot from the Hebron farmer. Gorin also concluded that the masks from the Steinhardt collection are also authentic and originate from three possible locations the Judean Hills, the Judean Foothills, and the Judean Desert Fringe. Gorin goes on to suggest that five of the Steinhardt masks and the Diane mask are possibly all from the same assemblage based on their similar construction, patina, and style. But without an archaeological fine spot, this is both scientific and curatorial conjecture. Even though in his catalogue essay, Gorin admits it cannot be proved that this entire set of masks was found in one spot, at one site, or at the same time. Theoretically, the masks could have been brought to the antiquities market from multiple sites for multiple looting episodes. This map from the exhibition catalog provides the possible find spots for the undocumented things owned by the Steinhars. Misleading in that only systematic archaeological excavation would provide the necessary contextual evidence to state exactly where these masks originated and if the cache of five masks existed in antiquity. Additionally, use of the terms like the Judean hills, Judean foothills, and Judean desert intentionally ignore the geopolitical boundaries of Palestine and Israel. The findings from the archeological scientists have resulted in a number of facts that may or may not be scientifically or archeologically verifiable. In the didactic material, the labels, the text panels, and the catalog associated with the exhibit, there was little or no discussion of the artifacts in the market or the undocumented nature of 10 of the masks. Before its public debut in 2014 at the Israel Museum, on June 8, 2012, mask number eight, the watching mask, was offered at a Christie's auction for an estimated four to $600,000. The auction notes refer potential purchasers to parallel references to masks from the Nahal Himar cave and from the Moshe Dayan collection, the Dayan mask from Horvat Dumas. The mask was cataloged as from a private New York collection. Whether it's the Steinharts who are the consigners is unclear, and there's no record of the mask actually selling in this auction. In the exhibit catalog for the face-to-face exhibit is an image from the Steinharts Home Library, which shows the mask below a Picasso. Throughout the catalog and the exhibit, there was much acknowledgment of the generosity and kindness of the Steinharts and their loan, but no mention of how demand for archaeological things like this can and does lead to looting at Neolithic sites like this site at Wadi el qatafi Okay, but don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that we have found any masks like those on display at this site in Jordan. Although, I must say that would be pretty sweet if we did find a mask or two at this OI project in the, body, in the eastern body of Jordan led by York Roan. By exhibiting documented and undocumented masks in the same space, and by providing scientifically created fine spots and a fictional narrative about a cache of masks, the Israel Museum has added to the market value of these pieces, should the Steinharts decide to donate or sell their masks in the future. Recently, I received a copy of this new volume by Professor Brian Hayden on the power of ritual in prehistory. Although I don't know Professor Hayden, I emailed him to ask about his choice of mask on the book jacket. He could have chosen the archaeologically recovered Nahal Himar mask, but instead he chose a mask from the Steinhardt collection. Undocumented and purchased from the market. He said there were two reasons for this choice. The Nahal Himar mask is fragmentary and incomplete, and the Steinhardt mask is complete and is a powerful image that represents the kind of intimidating features that typify the many secret societies which are the topic of this book. Does the appearance of an undocumented Neolithic mask on the cover of an academic volume by an acknowledged expert on prehistory reinforce the perception that it's okay to purchase antiquities with hidden histories? In a discussion with exhibit curator, Debbie Hirschman, she mentioned that there were three types of visitors, those who spend five minutes, those who spend 10, and those who spend an hour or more. In a day spent conducting participant observation, I can confirm this pattern of visitors. Which made me wonder, if the average visitor only spends 10 minutes, would they even see or read a label or text panel about the object's history? Would they care? Would the typical museum-goer, my mother-in-law Fran, think of asking sticky questions about where the artifacts come from, who owns them, should they be on display, are they embroiled in controversy, is there any information missing? Looking at the exhibit map, does the viewer understand that the five masks depicted as found in the same spot is conjecture based on evidence from Patina? Even if the answer to all of these questions is a resounding no, I believe the museum has a duty to reveal the hidden histories related to these difficult questions and controversies surrounding the objects they choose to display. So I wanna end by looking at what was described in two thousand fifteen as Israel's hottest ticket and Israel's most visited archaeological exhibit ever, which attracted more than five hundred thousand visitors in just over a year. Herod the Great, the king's final journey at the Israel Museum in West Jerusalem showcased the life and things of the infamous King Herod. The centerpiece of the exhibit was a restored section of a mausoleum from Herodian, and inside was the painstakingly restored sarcophagus, which was reputed to be Herod's. In their presentation of the artifacts, the Israel Museum avoided any discussion about the controversy surrounding the mausoleum and the so-called Herod's tomb. Not only was there no discussion of debate surrounding the tune attribution, but there was also no indication that the site of Herodian is located in the Palestinian territories. How is it possible that in the associated exhibition literature, Herodian is only obliquely mentioned as situated in Judea and Samaria and not Palestine? Hidden histories everywhere. The practice of archaeology in the West Bank is a direct result of a series of colonial and post-colonial international accords, conventions, national laws, and policies, which were all set in place ostensibly to protect the past for the future. The legislative programs that led to the current situation are the vestiges of the Ottomans, the British Mandate, the Jordanians, the Israelis, the Palestinians. Current oversight of cultural heritage in Palestine is a result of a 1966 Jordanian law, two Israeli military orders, and the Oslo Accords of the early 1990s, and the most recently passed Palestinian Decree Law Number 11 in 2018. Under the 1954 Hague Convention, to which both Israel and Palestine are a party, both agree to refrain from requisitioning movable cultural property situated in the territory of another high contracting party. The removal of artifacts for any reason, including display, is a direct violation of this UNESCO customary law. When challenged regarding Palestinian claims to the material on display as part of the Herod exhibit, James Snyder, who was then director of the Israel Museum, noted that a huge sum of money had been spent to restore and make available for public consumption artifacts that might otherwise have been lost. Quote, We're not about geopolitics. We're not about minefields. We're about trying to do the best and the right thing for the long term for material cultural heritage, said Mr. Mr. Snyder, quoted in the New York Times. Implicit in this statement is that places like Palestine cannot adequately protect their own material culture, which reinforces the colonial notion of indigenous peoples as incapable of caring for their culture and setting up the defense of the universalist paradigm of a shared values and an appreciation for the common heritage of humankind. Again, quoting Mr. Snyder from the Times, Our goal was to invest in the preservation of this material and return it to the sites. We are but custodians, and we are always ready for it to be where it belongs. In a correction printed two days later in the New York Times, it made clear that when Mr. Snyder suggested the return of the items, he didn't mean to the Palestinians. Both the New York Times correction and Snyder suggested that the Oslo Accords provided the necessary legal framework for the Israeli curation and display of the archaeological artifacts from Herodium. But Hamdan Taha, who was then director of the Palestinian Department of Antiquities and Cultural Heritage, alleged that Palestinians were never consulted about the exhibit in the Israel Museum, which he called an aggression against Palestinian culture rights in their own land, and asserted that this action would not help to reconstruct peace between Palestinians and Israel. Herod the Great at the Israel Museum told the story of Herod, his life and his death. But the stories are incomplete, misleading, confusing, and hidden. Palestine and Palestinians are missing, perhaps privileging attachment of one nation over another. The public counts on the museum to act legally and ethically and to be responsible and transparent in their presentation of the past. They place their trust in the organization. The Gilgamesh dream tablet has not been temporarily removed from display at the Museum of the Bible. In 2019, September of 2019, it was seized by the government, by the U.S. government, and will most likely be repatriated to Iraq. Museums are the place for the uncomfortable truths, both intended and unintended consequences, and for exposing hidden histories. Things on display in museums have all kinds of unseen accompanying baggage. Political, national, institutional, disciplinary, and personal. That artifacts come from contested areas or from the antiquities market and that have contentious background, they're all embroiled in academic and ownership debates and may have potentially be fake. These are all topics that are left unaddressed in the museum. I would argue that attachment to owning, displaying, and seeing things from the Holy Land leads to the display of fakes and contested items without their whole stories and privileging some of the attachments over others. The attitudes of museums and the average museum visitor towards artifacts with iffy backgrounds or contested things entwined with politics are often in a state of flux and caught up in emotion. Seemingly innocent exhibits are often embroiled in the backstories of which the public is unaware. But a museum's willingness not to address these thorny issues of object documentation, archaeological site destruction as a result of the demand for artifacts, and the geopolitics ensures that histories are hidden. It's both the museum and our duty as visitors, archeologists and scientists to think about the consequences of telling these incomplete stories in the exhibition space. Thanks very much. For over 100 years, the OI has been a leading research center for the study of ancient Middle Eastern civilizations. Join us in uncovering the past and learn about the beginnings of our lives as humans together. Become a member by visiting oi.uchicago.edu slash member.